This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. The holidays may be over, but we at the Cap Times are not done celebrating yet. Welcome to the second annual, very special Wedge Issues Corner Table crossover episode. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about government and politics in Wisconsin. I have the privilege of being joined this week by Cap Times food editor and arts writer Lindsay Christians, who also hosts the Cap Times Corner Table podcast about food and drink in Madison, and by Andrea Hilsey, the owner of Square Wine Company, a favorite of both Lindsay's and mine. We're talking this week about wine, cooking, and women's suffrage, and what all three have in common. Stay tuned. Welcome to the second annual Wedge Issues Corner Table Cap Times Podcast crossover episode. Woohoo! It's supposed to be a holiday crossover episode, but we're a little bit late uh, this year. A little bit late, but not that late. We're like a week late. You know what? The holidays should continue on in spirit anyway. Holidays, holidays. I was going to say like we could call it like a holiday hangover, but I don't even feel like that. Like it's just a nice, it's an so extension of the celebration. Holiday. Yes. Uh, so last year, Lindsay and I did this. Uh, I'm sitting here today. I should mention with Lindsay Christians, Cap Times food editor and Hello. arts writer, <laughs> host of the Corner Table podcast, and Andrea Hilsey, the owner of Square Wine Company. Oh hey, hey. Which is how many years old now? Uh, about seven and a half. Oh my wow. gosh. I know. Time flies. Seriously. <laughs> and we're going to let you plug it. Where can people find Square Wine Company? So we are so creatively named Square Wine Company because we are downtown um, on the square. Um, I always use the old fashioned as a reference point because I feel like everyone that lives in Wisconsin knows where that is. Yes. So we are between the old fashioned and East Washington. It's a great little spot. Lindsay and I have spent a little time there. A little bit. <laughs> we like it. It's all good. Uh, so last year we we did this uh, with Bob Haymauer, who is another friend of of our podcasts, and uh, he brought us some wine to pair with the cheeses that were preferred by all of the political candidates that I had interviewed who were running for governor. I had asked their favorite cheese, and Bob basically just brought us some champagne, and we drank champagne and ate cheese, and it was super fun. Classic Bob. It was great. It was good. Uh, and and this year there wasn't a really obvious election theme, so we started thinking about what else was going on and. And in 2019, it was the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in America. But even though 2019 is over and it is 2020, because things take time in government, 2020 was the first year that women could vote in a presidential election. So we're still celebrating a similar connected 100th anniversary here. And we were thinking about what to do with that and how to combine our natural talents and interests, <laughs> mine being the politics, uh, and Lindsay's being the food and drink aspect. So The cake, basically. The cake is, is, is Lindsay's thing. And <laughs> obviously, Andrea's here for the booze. Right. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> yeah, it's a good place, actually. Um, but there's a cool thing that happened during the women's suffrage movement, and uh, it was this trend of women and suffragette associations putting out cookbooks. And it was sort of a propaganda tool and also a networking tool. And so we decided that Lindsay could make something from the cookbook, and Andrea could bring some wine to pair with 
said item and I could show up with a history lesson. So I'm definitely the most popular guest here. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like we should start with a history lesson. Start with the history, move on to dessert. Yeah. So, yeah. It's also better before the wine starts, like, seriously That's swirling. true. I mean, we could do, like, a drunk history. That could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're not going to wait to start drinking our wine until it's time to pair uh, it with our desserts because you were so kind as to bring us two wines, not just one, to pair with the dessert. So what are we going to drink first? Um, so the first one I brought is from Samantha Sheehan. Um, she makes wine in California. Um, and, and so what I did as a not-so-creative sort of theme, this isn't to pair with the dessert. This is just mostly to drink. But I went with women winemakers or women owners. And this is 100% Pinot Meunier, which is super fun, which you don't see a lot. Um, and it is from Sonoma Mountain, um, and specifically the Vanderkamp Vineyard. Uh, 100% whole cluster, just really light and fresh and really pretty. And this also was one of my pairing for kind of for Thanksgiving, for the holidays, because you get that kind of nice cranberry, a little bit herbal sort of note. Um, and so I, I just thought it worked really well with all sort of holiday foodstuffs. You don't see Pinot Meunier by itself very often. I know, which is why I brought it. I was very excited. So Samantha was uh, really inspired by the wines of Burgundy and Champagne. She makes like sparkling Pinot Meunier as well, um, which is why she also makes a still Pinot Meunier. Um, she also actually makes a bunch of vermouth as well. That's really, really quite tasty. Ooh. California um, vermouth? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, it's not so funny, but um, I was going to actually bring her vermouth to pair with, with this dessert once I found out what it was, um, and we sold out of it over the weekend. Wow. So she does a handful of different vermouths. The one I was going to bring was a it's a pomplamousse vermouth, so it's kind oh. of grapefruit-based. I thought that would work well with the, spoiler alert, gingerbread cake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we sold out of it. And it's delicious. It tastes like vermouth with, like, a little bit of California sunshine. It's just, like, oh my super glue-glue, as the kids say. Yeah. <laughs> Do the kids say that? I think so. <laughs> I'm so behind. I'm so <laughs> what the kids say? I love doing this because, like, I start talking about political things that Lindsay's like, I don't know what she's talking about. And then, like, Lindsay starts talking about wine things. And I'm like, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> like... I know just enough about wine to, you know, just like drink things that are good. But mostly I just walk in a square and say, Andrea, what do I want? Yeah. <laughs> hey, that works. It yeah. does. I take a lot of pride in that. I, yeah. I spent, you know, seven and a half years trying to garner that trust. Um, and I, you know, I always tell people life is hard enough. You don't need to know everything about wine. There are professionals for that. Um, <laughs> yes. And uh, and yeah, so anytime anyone comes into the shop, I, you know, whether we're pairing wines to do, you know, wash clothes with or for a dinner or for a special <laughs> occasion, um, we welcome it all. I feel like there was many a day when I was working across the street covering the Capitol and I would just walk in and be like, well, today sucked. What do I drink? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one is really beautiful. I feel like it it has a lot of like brightness and acidity. Mm-hmm. When you say whole cluster, I often think that that's going to make it chewy because they're, you know, the, the skins and the stems and all these different things. I don't know if the stems, but the skins mm-hmm. bring all that tannin and they're going to make the color darker as well. Um, but this is just really light on its feet. Yeah, when it's done well, um, the stems kind of like lignify and it, it gives the wine this really great texture while still being kind of light and fresh and in color. And in all honesty, you know, I don't have really a standard for, for still red Pinot Meunier. Um, and so I always try to taste as many as I can. And I've only been tasting wine for, I feel like, a very long time and I've still only had a handful. So, yeah. Thank you for bringing this. Of course. Yes, P- Pinot Meunier. Meunier. Yeah. I like it. I don't think I've ever had this it's usually the third grape in champagne if there is one. Oh, yeah it's kind of the like redheaded stepchild of champagne a it is bit. wow um it's grown in the south of champagne mostly typically blended but there are some hardcore you know small growers that'll do 100 percent pinot meunier in the aube and, and that sort of stuff so but the wines are they're fun and they need some love they do and we are I'm loving it, it already <laughs> <laughs> well should we talk about women's suffrage let's do that great because i've got some history 
and some knowledge to drop. Um, I hope that you, both those of you sitting here with me and people who are listening to this, know that the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution granted women voting rights. Uh, But did you know, fun fact, that Wisconsin was the first state to ratify that constitutional amendment? How many times did it take, do you know? Well, I've got a little history for you here, but uh, once Congress passed this, it it was a straight shot. It just took uh, time for the states that were needed to approve it to approve it. Um, But we were the first. But we were the first, and there's a fun story to come about how we got there. So we're going to go all the way back to 1848 when Wisconsin became a state. Did you guys have – well, you didn't grow – neither of you grew up. We both grew up in Michigan. No, you grew up in Ohio. Ohio. Okay. Well, we're all sort of Midwesterners here. Um, If you you grew up in Wisconsin and you – attended elementary school, you probably heard the rhyme, Wisconsin became a state in 1848. Easy way to remember it. Also, that was the year that the women's suffrage movement really got moving. And there were attempts really starting around then in Wisconsin and the state legislature to grant women's suffrage at the state level. They did not go so well. How many years are we talking about at this point? A lot of years. <laughs> Yay. I'm going to rattle them off for you. In 1869, the Wisconsin Women's Suffrage Association was born. In 1886, Wisconsin granted women the right to vote in school board elections and nothing else. And then there were more attempts to try to change that that didn't go very well. So in 1912, voters uh, at a statewide level got to weigh in on a referendum to extend that right to vote beyond school board races into all elections. And spoiler alert, it was only men voting in that referendum because obviously women couldn't and they rejected it. So the next year, the legislature approved a similar measure, and this went to the governor to approve or not approve, and Governor Francis McGovern vetoed it. Boo, Francis McGovern. Then there was another attempt in 1915. That didn't work either. In 1919, Congress passed the 19th Amendment, and then it needed three-fourths of the states to ratify it in order to become law. So as we know, uh, even, even though you guys didn't grow up in Wisconsin, you've lived here, Wisconsin and Illinois have a very healthy rivalry with one another in sports, in government, in all things. And they were in a race to be the first state to approve this amendment. It just so happened that both of their state legislatures were still in. They had some unfinished business. So other states were not doing business at this time, but Wisconsin and Illinois were. So one of these states was going to be first. And Illinois ratified it at 10.48 a.m., And Wisconsin ratified it at 11.52 a.m. But Illinois screwed up the paperwork. (laughs) Silly Illinois. Uh. (laughs) So Wisconsin ended up being the first state to actually get the paperwork successfully to the State Department in Washington. And Illinois got theirs in, I think, like eight days later. Um, So Wisconsin's the first state. Almost wasn't, but we were. And Tennessee was the last one, and that didn't happen until the next year. So 1920 ended up being the first year that women could vote in a presidential election. And now it's 2020, and we're going to have the Democratic National Convention here in Milwaukee. So Wisconsin is yet again the center of the action. What month is that, the DNC? It is in July. Ooh, July. Great time to be in Wisconsin. (laughs) I mean, it is a good time to be in Milwaukee because at least you're on the lake. Oh, fair. And fun fact. I've got lots of fun facts for you today. Last day of the DNC, the day that they will announce slash confirm slash whatever the nominee be my 30th birthday. Amazing. <laughs> That's and perfect. That's how I will celebrate. <laughs> You've done so much for only being 29. So much. My God. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me that you're not 30. I am not 30, but I will be soon. You seem really responsible. <laughs> you do. 
<laughs> Thanks, guys. It's actually why I brought this up. I just needed a little bit of praise. <laughs> it worked. Um, so we're going to talk about the suffrage cookbook, and this is going to be your story to tell in a second here, Lindsay, but I'll, I'll keep up with the history lesson so you only have to talk about the food. Uh, so from 1866 to 1919, about uh, half a dozen suffrage cookbooks were published by suffragette associations, and um, this was sort of a like triple threat. You could raise money by selling them. Um, you could sort of network by like going to events and having them out. But it was also a little bit of a subversive message to the people who opposed the suffrage movement and were saying like, hey, you're ignoring your wifely and motherly duties by going out and fighting for the right to vote. And they were like, no, look, we can cook and bake and make drinks and set the table and we can protest and we can vote. Um, so this cookbook is one of a handful that we looked at, um, and this one was published in 1915 by a Mrs. L.O. Kleber, we don't know, um, but it was uh, published out of Pittsburgh, I believe. And uh, I sent you the link, Lindsay, and said, have at it, take a look, and uh, what did you find? So first of all, I want to say I printed it out because I, it was a lot of scrolling because it's like 115 pages, this cookbook. It is wacky. Uh, anytime that you look at historical cookbooks, you realize that recipes are little time capsules, right? And it's really hard to cook, actually cook out of a historic cookbook. They're really more like artifacts, right? They're snapshots of a given time. So. Yeah, I would say they're not exactly instructional. Yeah, no, no they're, they're not, not instructional. And they're actually kind of, some, sometimes they're sort of the opposite of instructional because like <laughs> your grandma's recipe for dumplings or whatever, because every culture has a dumpling, um, will be like, Add water to make dough. Well, what's that dough supposed to look like, feel like? You know, how much dough am I making? Um, and so anyway, this kind of reminds me of like when when you the, the age old thing of when you go into like a preschool or a kindergarten, and you ask kids, you know, like, how do you make your favorite meal? And it's like spaghetti, like make meatballs, cook pasta. It's good. <laughs> I was watching the Great British Baking Show while I was baking last night. Um, and. That's the technical challenge usually is they'll say, make icing, make lemon curd, make pastry. And that's like all the instructions. that the, And it'll give you like ratios for things, right, I assume. But the, it'll just say, make the dough. And you're supposed to know. Right. Because you're on a baking competition show. Sure. Um, and I suppose, I mean, the women that were reading these cookbooks spent a lot of time cooking maybe so, actually so you have you have thoughts on I have this. questions about this I wonder how many people who were how many people who were buying suffrage cookbooks or who could like afford to be buying cookbooks were people who had cooks yeah right mm. so and I I just wonder about that because your biggest your suffrage movement is going to be like any nonprofit you're going to want donors right and I just wonder well I mean traditionally speaking the people who are most involved in politics especially the ones who can attend protests or donate money are people who are comfortable enough in their station of life to do that. They're not people who are trying to earn a paycheck and right. get home and get dinner on the table. It, it is a more affluent portion of society. Exactly. And I will say the image I was calling up for this was Mrs. Banks in Mary Poppins because, you know, she had a cook. Yeah. So recipes make assumptions about your equipment, your access to ingredients, and your knowledge base. The suffrage cookbook is no different in this. Uh, I had a lot of fun paging through it. The cookbook itself, Jesse. I will put the link 
in show notes. That'd be great. Uh, and it's on like the Gutenberg Project, which just archives all kinds of stuff. And there are a lot of really good articles written about this time, too, about the other books that were written. Yeah. Um, NPR did a cool, cool thing. The Guardian did one. So if you ever needed a recipe for liver dumplings that included suet, that's in there. Reminds mm. me of birdseed. Mm-hmm. I think suet is birdseed. I think so. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of aspic. What's that? Ooh. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> It's like what's on pate, right? Right. It's gelatinous. Oh. Uh, gelatinous of, animal fat, I think. Yeah. Yum. There's a lot of boiled dressings. That I don't even know. What would that like? Just involving boiling of like whatever the ingredients are, eggs and vinegar and other things. Um, there's something called delicious Mexican dish that involves <laughs> sweetbreads, three dozen oysters, roast beef gravy, and cream. Whoa. Boy. Uh, didn't make that for us Yeah, today. why didn't you make that? I was disappointed. <laughs> I mean, if ever we were going to try that. I mean, uh, there's a lot of toasts. They call them savories. There's way more awful in this cookbook than we eat now. And by awful, O-F-F-A-L. So like kidneys, livers, lungs, those kinds of things. I don't know if there's lungs in here. But there's a lot of like sweetbreads, organ meat, gizzards, livers, veal knuckle. Veal knuckle? Veal knuckle. So like... The, the knuckle. You guys, I had lamb knuckle in uh, Spain. It was the stickiest thing. It was sticky? It was so, because it's like gelatinous as oh. well, and they that cook it. like what you collagen like, for your dog to chew on? I, we ordered it accidentally, and the person <laughs> behind the bar was like, in Spanish, like essentially like, are you, like this are is, you are sure? you sure? And the guys that I were with were like, yeah, and ended up his Spanish translation wasn't great. But yeah, like literally napkins like sticking to our hands. Oh my God. Sticky. Well, but, how did it taste? Uh, gooey. The texture, <laughs> the texture wasn't great, as you could imagine. But so, right. yeah. Um, there's an entire section in this cookbook of salads that are organized by color so that you can match your table decor with your salad. Well, that's just practical. Yeah. I mean, the pink salad. <laughs> has tomato juice and veal stock thickened with gelatin served with mayonnaise that has been colored with cranberry juice. <sighs> Isn't that fabulous? That's pink. I mean, I appreciate the commitment to color. Right, yeah. I was on board with tomato juice and veal stock, Yeah, that so sounds clear, fine. But after that, the it got weird. gelatin and cranberry mayonnaise? Yeah. I would not have done well back then. <laughs> we wouldn't have known any different, I think. I fair. guess. I mean, um, one of the things you were looking at was just like, Crepe juice and egg? Yep. <laughs> and it had calorie counts. Um, well, that, again, practical. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> you can't um, fit in those corsets if you're not watching the calories. Trigger warning, friends. Um, <laughs> uh, some things don't change, though. That was the most interesting thing. So there are still flavor combinations that we would use now. Um, pound cake is still a good thing. I didn't trust the ratios in this book, but, like, pound cake is delicious. It's a lot of butter and a lot of eggs. And it's wonderful. Uh, and a lot of sugar. <laughs> um, there was, oh, there were a couple tips that I saw. Using an ice-filled water bottle to roll out a pie crust. Ooh. That's a smart hack. Fancy. I feel I, like I would be on. Why is that not a thing that we know about now? Well, I, mean, I now think we do. because we can control the temperature in our homes better. Sure. But, like, what if you just don't have a rolling pin? If you don't have a rolling pin, use a, use a wine bottle. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> and you should have a wine bottle, friends. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> if you boil bones for a really long time and then you skim the grossness off the top, that is still a good thing to give to somebody who is sick because it's going to have a lot of collagen and protein. Oh. That's still a good thing. It's like early 20th century bone broth. It's like the same. It's ramen broth, right? Is that still like bone broth is still like a hip 
I don't Did know. So I feel like it was for a hot second. Yeah. Keto is big now. Yeah, I know. I know. A lot of people into keto. We're not following that here. No. There's nothing keto about anything we're doing right now. Nope. Um, so what I made, I wanted to tell you what I made. So uh, I was looking at the all the different recipes and I thought for sure I was going to do something sweet because it holds up better for this kind of situation and because I didn't want to cook with uh, kidneys and bring them into the office and, and have them wait all day. Yeah, Veal knuckle for this I, tiny little you know, room that we're sitting in. Didn't want to, I could have brought my Instant Pot in. I don't know that my coworkers would have appreciated it. So I decided to make uh, something inspired by the ginger cookies. And my first move was to go to, like, I thought, okay, well, I can't, I don't think I can trust this recipe. The ingredients seem sound, but the ratios don't. And the recipe in the cookbook calls for three pounds of flour. (laughs) And I thought, well, I'm going to be adjusting these ratios anyway. Why don't I just see if there's something else out there that I can use? There's supposed to be three pounds of flour in here? Well, in the ginger cookies that are in the suffrage cookbook. That's crazy talk. And we don't know how many cookies that was supposed to make? It says, these keep well, especially in stone crock. This recipe makes a quantity if cut with small cutter. A quantity. A quantity. It's a pound of butter and lard mixed, which is actually how I do my sugar cookies. I do a combination of butter and Crisco. It's yeah. the only time oh, I use sure. Crisco all year. Yeah. Um, but And lard will work if you have leaf lard. But I found uh, even leaf lard sometimes you'll get kind of a porky flavor. What is leaf lard? Leaf lard is from a part of the pig that's like right along the rib cage, I believe. And it's not as – so lard, just regular lard from the pig, anywhere on the animal that you're going to have fat, that's where you're going to get a ton of flavor. So if you have less fat on your lamb, it won't taste as lamby. Sure. Right? Yeah. Fat is flavor. Right. Yes. So, I mean, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so this this called for butter and lard. It called for brown sugar and molasses. The recipe that I have here also has brown sugar and molasses. Grandma's brand molasses because, of course, um, and I used dark brown sugar because I like it better. But so then I, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to make this ginger cookie recipe because it seems unreliable and I will fall on some swords, but we don't need to eat bad food here, right? <laughs> so uh, I went to the cookie book that I got from my grandmother – uh, when she passed away, and I, I've cooked dozens and dozens of cookies out of this book. Tell us about the cookie book. Oh yeah, my that's gosh. intense. Yeah, so this is from 1963. Um, listeners can't see this, I wish obviously, that they could see this. But it is held together with duct tape. It's a Betty Crocker. I also wish they could see it because it's it, they spelled cookie strangely, in my opinion. I've never seen it really spelled <laughs> like that. <laughs> C-O-O-K-Y, uh, cookie book. Um but the funny thing about, so I've cooked a lot of this, and the fun thing is you can still see in the margins my grandmother's uh, quantity adjustments to quadruple the recipes. She made oh. four times e- for each one. She had a really big KitchenAid mixer. Wow. <laughs> um, but I may, I've made a bunch of things out of this, mostly like with my grandma, so less as an adult. But That's super fun. A lot as yeah, a kid. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. So, but I was like, oh, they must have. Betty Crocker certainly has a gingerbread recipe. You she would think. does. Okay. However, all of the ginger cookie or gingerbread recipes in here say add one-third cup lukewarm water to one package of our gingerbread mix. Oh. Snap. 1963. Yep. Convenience. Women were mm-hmm. in the workplace and – or moving that direction for right, sure. Right, And so – and it was very much about like how can we get this done quickly. So that's what they all are. Uh, I can guess what's in that mix. I wasn't going to guess. So – then I turn to our friend, Nigella Lawson, uh, who turns 60 on the day that we're recording this. 60. Amazing. 
Yeah. Happy birthday. She is a domestic goddess. Um, so I went to her 1998 cookbook, How to Be a Domestic Goddess, which is actually a really good baking book. Um, she sort of named it as a little bit of a joke, and then no one really got the joke. Kind <laughs> of like Grease the Musical. Nobody got the joke. Um, but so she she has a gingerbread cake in here that she actually has in her chapter about things to bring to your child's bake sale. So it's fresh gingerbread with lemon icing. And the thing that I love about Nigella is her voice. So it's very, she's holding, she's going to hold your hand a little bit. Um, and she'll say things like, be careful not to overcook it as it is, it is nice, a little stickier. And anyway, we'll carry on cooking as it cools. And I just love I like that. this little lilt of Britishness that comes through in her writing. Well, it's also, I think, right, Julia Child never apologized for any of her food or never let anyone know what was going on. I was just like, this is this is it. This is how it's <laughs> supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the batter for this, the the batter for this cake is very, very wet batter. And I was a little concerned about like lumps of flour, but it seemed to sort of all come out pretty well. And then it has this lovely like lemon confectioner sugar icing, and I used the sifter that I actually got from my grandma too that I still have in my house. It is ancient, (laughs) the sifter thing, Uh, but it works like the two times a year that I need it to sift confectioner sugar. But yeah, so this is a gingerbread cake. It's very dark. And the thing about this is it uses fresh ginger. So I actually grated ginger on my microplane because I happen to have it in my house. And that, I think, is another thing to think about in terms of like what access we have to ingredients, you know? So did the suffrage cookbook call for that? No, certainly not. So it called for, I mean, I would assume it just says, you know, four teaspoons or so of ginger. I'm I'm thinking they mean crystallized ginger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So, but it's it's really interesting because I feel like there's an evolution that happens between the the suffrage cookbook through Betty Crocker up through Nigella. Yeah. But it's all home baking. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's all a little bit like. A gingerbread cake is not a flex, but especially if you are not expected to know how to cook or like knowing how to cook was something that maybe you would have rejected. I feel like women now are less likely to say, oh, well, I don't cook. I mean, some people do, but there was definitely like a long time where people were like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, why would I spend time on house? Right. When I can just get tap. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to focus on my career. I'm going to have these mm-hmm. other areas. Whereas now it's sort of like a oh, this is a thing that I can take on because I choose to and it's like a hobby. Yeah. I think right? that's real. Yeah. I mean, um, I enjoy cook. I don't really super enjoy baking, but I enjoy cooking because I have to put my phone down and I can't really think about what I was doing at work that day. Yeah. And it's like a mandated, you know, 20 plus minutes of yeah, de-stressing. It's really nice, but I feel like it's also important to acknowledge that not everybody feels that way and that also cooking true. is like it's labor. Sometimes it's very stressful. Right? Which is how I feel about baking, to be fair. Yeah. yeah baking stresses me out. Yeah. Yeah. I like the precision in baking. I like knowing exactly how much of the thing I'm supposed to put in and then it's going to turn out like that. It seems reasonable when you say it out loud, but yeah. yeah. No, but it's very stressful <laughs> because of the precision. Because if you don't get it right, then what have you got? Exactly. Well, and I think it's also interesting to think about how judgment follows these things mm-hmm. and how women in society are judged for their skills or lack thereof around sort of the domestic arts. Um, and even the suffrage cookbook was sort of talking about that, this idea of like, like, oh, no, look, we cook too. Right. You know, we're, we're not completely throwing away your idea of what a woman should be. Even if it's arbitrary and based on nonsense. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks also the story here with it being obviously 100 years is that maybe, I mean, I don't think that those those feelings and judgments are true anymore, right? Like I mean, anyone can cook food. Anyone can cook food. If women are in the home and not cooking food, I feel like it's not a big deal. I hope not. I hope you're right. We also, I feel yeah. like Lindsay and I are probably closer in age than you and I are. But, um, <laughs> you know, I feel like we all grew up in Midwestern households where, you know, the, the kind of scratch ingredients that people are cooking with today and the access to those ingredients aren't what they were. Yeah. And I joke, I mean, people say, like, how did you get into wine? I joke that, like, I didn't have, like, a fresh vegetable until I was out of college, oh, I think. You my know husband what I mean? definitely did not. Patrick did not have a green bean that wasn't from a can. Yeah. Well, that's for true. Me, that's with true, peas. Like, yeah. I hated peas growing up. Because they're always mushy. Because they were always, yeah. From the can. Which is gross. Yeah. It totally is. Yes. I can't tell you yeah. the number of vegetables that he thought he hated because. Right. But I feel like yeah. if anybody was cooking, you know, in the 80s or early 90s with that sort of food, like nobody's going to be why would the you most be amazing yeah. chef. Yeah. And yeah, why would you be excited to go thaw vegetables? Right. I like the empowerment that you see in the suffrage cookbook because you are seeing women who are like, what have we got? Yeah. Recipes. Yeah. Where have we got them? Right here. <laughs> um and, and because it is, it, it reminds me of, I was interviewing Jennifer Gaddis about school lunch and like the social movements around improving it and how it really came out of women being like, what power do we have? We have economic control over the food that we buy for our households. Okay, what can we do with that? Like, what can we do with that power as a collective, as a group that can lobby for better food? And in this particular case, it's, yeah, it's saying we stick it to you who say that we mm-hmm. can't cook because we're suffragettes. But also, like, we're going to use resources that we have to raise money for a cause that we believe in. And I love that. Yeah, I think. Well, and and thinking about where was the right to vote, vote first extended to school boards? Where could women first run for office for school board? It's been traditionally thought that, yeah, this is this is the area that women have control over, whether it be the kitchen or, you know, where your kid's going to school or what they're eating. And they took advantage of that in every way that they could. Right. Instead of seeing it as a lack of greater power, they seized the power that they had. So, yeah. But anyway. So should we eat some cake? Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. This is the the kind of like wine for dummies pairing for dessert wines and and sweets is that you always want the the wine to be sweeter than whatever the dessert you're serving is. Mm. If if you don't, the wine can kind of come across astringent. There are exceptions, but it literally will result in just like you have to trial and error, right? Like you have to open 100 wines to figure out what the hell goes with candy corn. So the the no-brainer way to do it is to just pick something sweet and then kind of match flavor profile. So if you're doing a port or a Madeira or like a kind of a darker dessert wine, usually you want to do something nutty, chocolatey. Um, And then if you're doing something lighter, like we have here, which is a a little Moscato de Asti, um, or perhaps a Brichetto, um, then you just want to match fruit flavors almost, if that makes sense. So Moscato works with kind of peachy apricot. Brichetto will work with kind of strawberry raspberry. Um, You know, obviously there's not really fruit in here. Ginger is a root, right? I think it looks like a root, physically. I mean, call it ginger root, right? Oh, duh. Yeah. 
Well, I didn't, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to sound like You're a the jerk. smartest just, person ever, yes. <laughs> I just... No, you don't Order groceries a lot. Yeah. So, um, so the, the wine that we're doing is from uh, Alessandra Barra. She's the, the owner of the property and winery. I don't think she actually makes the wine proper. But I wanted to show that Moscato... I, I love Moscato as a dessert wine because it is lighter in style. I, I know Moscato gets a lot of hate. And, I, you know, I'm not drinking it that often personally. But I love it as a dessert wine alternative to Port or to Madeira because those are fortified wines... And all of a sudden, you're going from 19, 20% alcohol to like 5, 7% alcohol, right? And so if you've been drinking wine throughout dinner, you know, Madeira and Port, which I love, can either be kind of the final nail in your coffin, or you can kind of end with like a light, fresh note, um, which is what this does, in my opinion. So the grape here is Moscato. We're in Asti in, in Piedmont in northwest Italy. And there is actually, if I could go on like a slight tangent for one second. Please do. Um, there are, <laughs> to all of you listening, um, there are 100% European wine tariffs that are about to come down the pipeline. And it's going to really mess up a lot of stuff for a lot of people in um, my industry specifically. Um, we'll survive because we sell other wine from other places. But for a lot of really great importers that focus on European wines who have spent many years making their business and, and building it and doing a great job, the fact that it can be kind of torn apart with one signature is, is slightly terrifying. Um, so there's a we I put a link up today um, on our Facebook page where you can kind of tell the the trade uh, representatives that you're kind of opposed to it. You know, at the end of the day, is it going to do a whole lot? No, but it's it's certainly better than nothing. Um, and if you're not paying attention to this, I um, would beg you to to open your eyes a little bit to it. So totally back that up. And we've heard a lot about the tariffs effects on other aspects of of the economy, certainly in Wisconsin. But um, I think when we hear tariffs on wine in Europe, we think like, oh, that's just only right. going to affect bougie people. Snub, yeah, something. bougie people, but that's not. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to affect American jobs um, a lot, you know, from the warehouse worker that operates the forklift for, for import companies. Um, I don't, I, you know, I, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's going to hurt everybody here more than it's going to hurt, you know, France and the rest of the EU. We're just going to end up paying double and, you know, sales will obviously decrease and, so it's it's uh, it's kind of crazy right now. So we're hoping that obviously it doesn't go through. It it would be enacted, I think, on January fifteenth, which is just next week. So so yeah, to be continued. You said collateral damage, I think, before about yeah. like this is not what the laws were intended. I, well, and it's so unrelated to what the tariffs are about. The right. tariffs are for, um, I think, ads on, on Facebook and Google, revenue from that, and then also from subsidies for Airbus. And so it's just, a, it's a, com- they're completely unrelated businesses to the, wi- like, at, to the wine business at all. You know, obviously olive oil and cheeses and all these things will be felt as well. Um, but a lot of people in, in the, uni- the United States make a living selling wine and, and being in the wine business. So, And I think the hardest hit people, right, are going to be the smaller producers. For and, sure. And those are, these people are farmers. Yeah. You know, and, and if I think if we can keep that in mind, that there are people who are, you know, struggling to make something really exceptional and unique, uh, that if we have access to it, it's a blessing, it's a yep. wonderful, mm-hmm. but it, it it totally stifles that kind of creativity and innovation. Well, and the other thing too, by you know, with the tariffs, is that you know the thought is it's going to hurt obviously 
French and and the rest of the European Union. But the the truth of the matter is is that all of those producers will just send their wines other places. We're not the only market in the world. Right. Asia is a booming market for wine, and uh, so it's just uh, it's it's bad. It's yeah. bad from all angles. <laughs> There's not one bright spot. No. <laughs> no. I mean, it, it it has a lot of parallels, I think, to what's going on in the dairy industry, and in that these tariffs seem to affect us at home far more than. Yeah, the countries that they're the US, ostensibly going to punish. Um, Chamber of Commerce as well. I mean, on their website too, they talk about how tariffs like don't don't work. I mean, right. it just ends up costing U.S. jobs. Mm. So, all right, somebody say something good. Oh <laughs> gosh, um, I will say something good. I don't know the last time I drank Moscato. I, I mean, I'm sure I've probably had something good at some point along the way, but what I remember of drinking Moscato is like being in college and having friends who you know were old enough to buy wine and bring it back to the dorm, and it was like the Moscato you can get at Target or whatever. And it's not bad. I mean, especially when you're beggars can't be choosers. But but uh, it, I was just so colored by that experience that I never thought that I would go seek out Moscato. But this is really delicious. It is a beautiful dark golden color. It has like a tiny bit of bubble. So it doesn't have like the the closure that like a champagne or a cava would have. Um, but it is like frizzante is usually what I mm-hmm. hear. Um, so it's like slightly bubbly, but not aggressively so. It is like honey. It reminds me of like late harvest Riesling a little bit. Yeah. And so this is all organically farmed, kind of like also um, native ferment, which you very rarely see, right? A lot of times people want to control all of the aspects of that, especially when it comes to Moscato and you're making a specific style of wine. And so the bubble is a little bit softer. It's also, you know, it's under cork, but it's not obviously under cork and cage like champagne. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's really honest and really original. It's not college Moscato. It's not that sweet, um, but it's got a lot going on. What is the price point on these wines? Um, so the, the Po Pinot Munier is on the shelf for 40, um, and the Barra Moscato is, I want to say, 17-ish. Nice. Um, and I was going to, this is like probably going to sound gross, but I don't mean for it to. Um, if you want to, if you're interested in grabbing these wines, um, I'm happy to give anyone that comes in a 10% discount if they mention oh. um, the podcast. That's not gross at all. It's kind of awesome. It's kind of delightful. <laughs> yeah. <actually. laughs> um, it pairs really wonderfully with your cake, too, it, which, which is, is delicious. delicious. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I The thing that I like about it is that it, it is not aggressively sweet. So there are, though, three sweeteners in there. There is molasses, there's brown sugar, and there's corn syrup. Mm. And I thought I had corn syrup. Turns out I did not. Is it light or dark corn syrup? It is light. And dark brown sugar. Light corn syrup, dark brown sugar. But the thing about the Moscato is the bubbles really help. So yes, it's sweet, but the bubbles sort of lift it. And like, I feel like I'm never going to love a wine that doesn't have some acid. Mm -hmm. And this does which I really like a lot. It reminds me, it's a little bit melony to me, like a, like a ripe melon. So, Tasty. Yeah. And it's, there's just like a lot of brightness going on here because of the, the lemon kind of glaze on your... Oh, yeah, there's um, lemon on the top. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's, and it's just, uh, you could have a really dense, overly sweet or overly molasses-y ginger cake, and this is not that. It's light, it's fluffy, it's moist. Yeah, I think that Some people don't like that word, <laughs> it is. There's something to be said about, I think, restraint in... In, in pairings and also just in food and drink in, in general. I, you know, I always joke, especially in the winter, that my winter sports are eating and drinking. And so <laughs> uh, it's nice to not feel weighed down or, like, have anything feel too cloying, too rich. Perfect for after the holidays when yeah. we have been eating all of the things yeah. that are too rich. Um, okay, so we've talked a little bit about the, the wines that we've had here, but 
I want to ask a little bit more about just sort of the the winemaking scene and what role women play in it, which is we were talking about a little bit earlier before we were when we were not recording. I kind of hate asking. I've, I did this a lot in politics. I hate asking the question like, "What is it like for women to do X thing?" But the fact of the matter is that there are industries, journalism and politics being among them, and I think sort of the world of food and drink also being among them that are sort of male dominated. And we're drinking wines that are made by women winemakers. But uh, how common is that in the world of wine? Um, I think, don't quote me, but I'm also going to give a little bit of a range. I want to say it's between 10 and 20 percent um, of wines are made by women, which is not really very big when you think about no. women are half over half of the population, I think. <laughs> um, and so it's funny because I struggle with this, too, because I, I think by sometimes drawing attention to it, are you dismissing you know, kind of writing it off a little bit. And I have mixed feelings about it. You know, I we opened the shop um, with really with two women that I think were really important and, and probably maybe just to, to my development too. Ariana Ocapinti, who makes wine in Sicily, um, who's about the same age as I am. And Elisabetta Foradori, who makes wine in northeastern um, Italy, kind of the, the foothills of the Dolomites, who makes I really pretty wine. Ones. Yeah. Um, one. And the Ocupinti. olive oil. The Ocupinti olive oil is so good. That's like, the, if I can give a plug for your shop, like, go buy that olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't, I, I don't know what else to say about it except that it's obviously an issue. How do we solve it? I have no idea. I have always, you know, personally just kind of kept my head down and just put in work, 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 work. You know, obviously that hasn't really worked <laughs> um, for women in in the wine industry. Um, Stevie, uh, God, I can't think of her last name. Her and her husband own Bay Grape out in Oakland, California. She started um, Stevie Staciones, I think is her name. She started Batonage, which is a women's uh, like women in wine forum um, out in the San Francisco area. I think this is the second or third year that she's been doing it, which is which is really great. You know, I sometimes I feel like I'm not a really great example because I you know I have a shop that I employ like two, three people. Um, and so I, I don't, I won't, I, it's hard for me sometimes to, to stick my flag in the ground because I don't have that many people to sing it to. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I can even tell you the guy, like most of my salespeople are, are white men. Yeah. You know, and, and so I, I think we're all getting there slowly but surely. Um, but I also don't know that there's like a, a quick fix. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like you said, there's kind of got to be a, a balance between like talking about it and highlighting it, but also... I mean, I, I'm just, I think it's always really cool when you see something or taste something or experience something that is really good, whether you, like, you meet someone who's really talented at their job or, you know, a politician who's got a really great policy proposal or you drink a wine that's really amazing. And then you find out, oh, a woman did this. And you're like, oh, that's like bonus. That's awesome. That's cool. And it's not going to be the deciding factor necessarily, but, um, you know, it's something to think about. There is, um, there's a Japanese woman that has a restaurant out in L.A., uh, which I think has like three Michelin stars and is kind of omakase style. Omakase, I don't even know how to say it. Um, and she actually like closed the door. She had an open kitchen and closed the doors because so many people said like, oh, your food's so cute. Oh, your food's so this. And she was just like, essentially, screw it. You're not going to know who's making your food. You're just going to love it, right? Which mm-hmm. kind of goes back to the argument of like, if I just write a wine list... And I just, all of the wines are from women winemakers and nobody knows it. Everyone's ordering wine off the list. Everyone's happy. Everyone says these wines are delicious. Right. So it's this weird kind of catch 22. I feel like there are a range of solutions for all of these kinds of things. And so long as we're being as deliberate and conscientious as we can, it's kind of the best we can do. Yeah. 
Um, because the truth is that nobody's going to solve gender inequity with a couple of wine bottles, but I, we can at least <laughs> continue to be thoughtful and deliberate and like raise up where we can raise up. Yeah. One glass at a time. One glass at a time. I would say, I mean, I think that's actually the, arguably the most important thing is women lifting women, right? Um, And so I I think if we start anywhere, that's where we start. Which the writers of the suffrage cookbook would agree with, I think. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, I would like to drink some more wine and (laughs) not be recorded talking while I do so. (laughs) Same, actually. I, I like this tradition that we have. I it's think a we good should tradition. keep it up. Yes. Uh, we'll have to figure out another excuse to drink wine and talk about politics and food next year. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Andrea, thank you so much for of coming course. in. Of course. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back every other Friday with new episodes, so make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you can stay up to date. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at Opie, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. You can find Square Wine Company at 5 North Pinckney Street on the Capitol Square, and you can find Lindsay's podcast on the Cap Times website or by searching for The Corner Table. You can also check out our other Cap Times podcasts like Live from Idea Fest and The Mad Splainers. And lastly, if you want to try one of those suffrage recipes for yourself, you can find a link to the cookbook in this week's show notes. See you next time. Oh,